in the Marvel universe, there's this kind of undercurrent that happens of in the midst of great trial, in the midst of great adversity, in the midst of great sorrow, there's underneath all of that, there's this Avenger initiative that's gonna bring about salvation and uh, gonna bring about the heroes of the story and, and gonna bring about uh, life. And uh, this Genesis story that we've been studying together, it is gonna unfold very much the same way. Uh, the sermon today, we're, we're gonna see the sorrow, we're gonna see the pain uh, that sin brings about, but we are going to be reminded that underneath all of it, there is an initiative taking place to bring about our salvation and to bring about our joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you for the salvation that he brings and the joy that he brings and the life that he brings. May our life and our attention uh, be focused on him. It is in his name that we pray, amen. I think that one of uh, the most difficult parts of being a parent, one of the most difficult parts of being a parent is trying to figure out appropriate consequences. Uh, I find this to be very challenging. There have been times uh, with uh, my oldest, I feel like maybe uh, I've gotten really angry about something and the consequences have been a little too harsh. Like I remember one time uh, threatening to take all the books out of his room if he didn't do something. And I was like, well, what a dumb consequence. No more learning. We're done reading in this house. We're not going to read books anymore. You know, you know. But in addition to that, he's got like 150 books in his room. This is a punishment on me, right? I'm not going to haul all those books out of his room. And so I immediately regretted, you know, even saying it. And then there are times where I think I've struggled with feeling like maybe we're too soft on an issue. So like recently, we just kind of changed some of the rules um, around mealtime at our house. And I'm like, man, are we being too soft on this issue? Should the consequences be more severe? I, you feel lost and nobody gives you a, a book to figure, well, there's a lot of books, but none of them are helpful for figuring these things out. But, and every parent, every leader in any organization, uh, anybody that, that does any of that sort of thing has felt this tension before. Am I being too hard? Am I being too soft? Am I, just being, am I being just right? What, what exactly is the tone that I should take? And the reason we feel that tension is that we understand that consequences are a part of life. They just are, that sometimes you have to live with the consequences of your actions, and if consequences are done properly, I think they can actually lead us to life. And so we've been in this story so far where, where Adam and Eve have been in the garden. The garden's been a place of perfection, but now Adam and Eve are gonna sin against God and against his word. They're gonna eat the fruit, and uh, there are going to be some consequences that flow from that. But it's important to remember as we work through this sermon, and we're gonna talk about this a lot, that these consequences are not the end of the story. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus is going to point us through these consequences. I believe he's gonna point us to life. So let me, th this text that we're gonna look at today is a little bit lengthy. So I've got it on the screen for you. If you just kinda of wanna follow around uh, along, this is Genesis three. When, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You remember, this is the fruit that God said, don't eat this fruit, uh, th this is gonna lead to death. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I, and, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked, right? Very parental here, right? Who told you this? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. If you hate snakes, you're in good company. Um, You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With uh, painful labor, will you give birth to children? Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree, which I have commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants from the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man is now like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So I love when we're kind of working through these consequences, the first consequence kind of falls to the serpent, uh, Satan. And it makes sense because he's the one that kind of started this whole thing. You know, there's an old preacher joke about that when uh, the fall came, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on, right? Which is exactly the the case. Really, really, don't laugh at stuff like that, please. It just encourages bad things. So the, the, first, the, the first kind of consequence to the, comes to the serpent. And we're told in the story that what's going to happen is somebody kind of from the line of Adam and Eve is going to come and ultimately is going to destroy the serpent. The way it's phrased is you will strike his heel. So you're going to get a strike in. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And years and years and years later, thousands of years later, Jesus happens onto the scene. And I think the crucifixion is the striking of the heel and the resurrection is the crushing of the head. That's kind of how I think that story plays out. And so ultimately, Satan is going to be destroyed. And when Jesus returns a second time, the book of Revelation details this quite a bit, that when Jesus returns, Satan will be cast into a lake of fire, and his deceiving and uh, misleading ways will be no more. So that's the consequence for the serpent. Your days are numbered. Someday you're going to be destroyed. But let's talk about the result of this sin from a more human perspective. Uh, so for the, the first consequence that falls to the man and his wife is the opening of their eyes, or you could call it the loss of wisdom. Wisdom is hugely important in the New Testament and in the Old. Uh, it's one of, they, they call it one of the seams of the Bible. That if you were to kind of outline the different uh, kind of categories of what is the Bible all about, you'd have five or six chapter headings. One of them would be wisdom. That wisdom from God is hugely important. That we learn to trust his wisdom. That we learn to walk in his wisdom. That we learn uh, that he knows what we should do. And that wisdom ultimately comes from God. And so the temptation of Adam and Eve and the temptation for you and I uh, in every temptation that we ever face is are they going to trust in God's wisdom? 
that God says, eat all this fruit, don't eat this fruit, eat all this fruit, don't eat this fruit, that we're going to trust his wisdom is good, we're going to trust his wisdom is kind, we're going to trust his wisdom is leading us to life, or are we going to take wisdom into our own hands? And that is the question for you, that is the question for me, and that is the question right now that I believe our culture is struggling through right now, is are we going to trust that God's wisdom is life? Are we going to trust that God's wisdom is leading us to a good place, or are we literally going to pluck the fruit and take wisdom into our own hands? So they see the fruit is desirable for gaining wisdom, but here's the truth that they very quickly learn. It's not God's wisdom that they're seizing. It's their own wisdom. It's their own ways. I'm reminded uh, of of a verse from the book of Proverbs, and it says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. The book of Romans says it this way, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So let me ask you, where does your sense of wisdom come from? I've been thinking about this this week. Where does my sense of wisdom come from? Does your sense of wisdom come from uh, Fox News or CNN? Does your sense of wisdom come from celebrity culture? Does it come from your nuclear family? Does it come from the community you, you live in? Where does your sense of wisdom come from? A hard lesson that Adam and Eve had to learn is that God's wisdom is always best. So it's best that our sense of wisdom come from him. And, and we're also reminded uh, that there are uh, ways that can seem wise and can seem good, but in the end, they lead to foolishness. In the end, they lead to, to death. So it's a reminder that just because something looks wise or culture says it's wise or it seems good and it tastes good, if it's not from God, ultimately it's gonna lead to a negative place. I think this is why uh, when you study history, when you see an interest in God going down, you see a rise in foolishness, right? An interest in God goes down and foolishness goes up. When we rely on our own wisdom and our own ideas and our own way, foolishness tends to increase at the same rate. So that's the, it's a loss of wisdom. A loss of God's wisdom is the first consequence. Uh, there, there is also another consequence of hiding from God or separation from God. That they are ashamed of what they did so they end up running away from him. And you know, if you, if you have kids or you have grandkids, you know kids are very tempted by this, that when they do something they shouldn't do, they hide, right? And you're looking around for them, trying to find them, and uh, usually it's a sure thing that something bad's happened in the house, right? If you're, if you're hiding from us, uh, because that's just the way we tend to, to go. But I think we've all found ourselves in that spot before. It's easy to kind of look at kids and say, aren't kids silly? But I think we all do that. When we do something, we regret when we do something we're ashamed of, when we do something we wish we hadn't done, uh, we tend to withdraw from God. And all it is is we're hiding from him. Maybe we pray less. Maybe we're in God's word more, uh, uh, less, excuse me. Maybe we find ourselves attending church less and we make the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. You know what their first mistake was? They didn't trust the wisdom of God. They didn't, they didn't trust when God said that's going to lead to death, when that God said that's not going to lead any place good, they didn't trust God. Their second mistake, I believe, was they didn't trust God with their sin. They didn't trust God's grace. They, they didn't trust God's compassion. And we were talking in our, uh, we have a kind of men's group that meets on Wednesday mornings. And a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how would the story have been different if the moment Adam and Eve took that fruit, if they went running to God and said, we've made a huge mistake 
And instead of hiding, they, they just confessed to God and said, we, we've done something we wish we hadn't done. How would the story have been different? We'll never know, but I do know that hiding from God always makes things worse. And here's what I want you to know. You can trust God with your sin. You can trust him with your sin. We'll talk about this more later, but we tend to think about grace as a New Testament idea. I've confessed to you on multiple occasions. This kind of drives me nuts when people kind of describe the Bible this way, where it's like in the Old Testament, God's like super grumpy and a curmudgeon. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, in the New Testament, he gets happy, right? And, and he gets graceful. And that's absolutely not the way it works. God of the, the grace, the God of grace in the New Testament exists in the Old Testament. And you actually see this in the story. The first time animal blood is ever shed in the, in the Bible is in this story. That God sees the man and the woman in their nakedness. He sees them in their shame. And so he kills an animal and he clothes them. It is a moment of grace. The other moment of grace in this story is God says, man, they have uh, sinned. They have reached out, reached out and they've taken the forbidden fruit. I don't want them to now be able to eat from the tree of life and just live forever in their sin. This sin issue needs to be addressed. And so God puts a cherubim there. Remember the flaming sword going back and forth? And he says, we're going to address their sin problem. And then we're going to bring the tree of life back into the picture. And you see that in Revelation. Right now we're living between two trees. Uh, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and the tree of life that reappears in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. When sin is dealt with and Satan is destroyed, he says, now you can eat. Now, now you can eat. And so right now we're between those two trees. But um, th this is, you can trust God with your sin. Jesus shows us from, from the cross that he is a God of grace and he's ready uh, and eager to forgive us. So there's this separation from God that happens. That's a consequence. There's relational discord between Adam and Eve. You remember the song of joy that Adam sang in, in Genesis 1 and 2? This song of love. She's now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Like we said, the lyrics need some work, but it's still a song of love. What was that now becomes like a ballad of blame. So we move in Genesis 1 and 2 from this song of love. The man and the woman, they love each other. They're married to each other. Things are great. And then Genesis 3, he's like, Adam, what did you do? This woman that you created... <laughs> Right, this one, Eve, what did you do? The serpent, yeah. you know, there's this kind of culture of, of blame and you even see it in the consequences that fall. It says, Eve, your desire is gonna be for your husband and Adam, you will rule over her. And here's the thing about this. Neither of these things are great when you combine them with a sinful nature. So for instance, desiring your spouse and loving your spouse is a good thing but it becomes a sinful thing when you desire your spouse even over God. So it says, I will do anything to please my spouse. I will do anything to make my spouse happy. And all of a sudden it becomes like a little W worship. You're worshiping your spouse even more than you're worshiping God. For, for man to demonstrate leadership in his family is a good thing. I think God created men to do that and God put that inside of the man. So God created that, but rulership can easily turn to unfair, unkind and ungraceful dominion and dominance. And so this sin nature, he says, man, you're gonna desire your husband. Your husband's gonna rule over you. And, and the sin nature just exasperates this problem. And, and it, it leads to kind of relational discord and, and marriage difficulties. There's a tension in work, right? So there's a relational tension. There's a tension in work that work uh, still has purpose, and there's still a plan to, God's, to, to, to God creating work, but here's the problem, and we'll all kind of understand this. Now it's hard. 
God created work as a good thing, and God created work as a purposeful thing, but now it's hard. Now there's weeds, and now there's uh, stuff that you have to overcome. And I know we live in a less agricultural uh, time than we used to live in, but there are things in your job, every single person here that's working, there are things in your job that are hard, that you just dread, like on Thursday morning, I have to go in and I have to have this conversation or I have to do this task or I have to send this email and I just, I really don't want to do it. Work is hard and it's the direct result of the sin of Adam and Eve. And the last consequence we see in the story is death. That God says to Adam, from dust you came. Remember in the first story, he gathers the dust to the ground and he makes the kind of dirt statue. From dust you came and now because you've taken from the fruit, to dust you will return. And from Genesis 3 on, death will come to every man and woman. And every once in a while, our culture just gets slapped in the face with this. I think this happened a week ago in our culture with the death of Kobe Bryant. Uh, the NBA player, uh, you know, in his early 40s, went down in a helicopter crash. And I think it, it, it just it shocks our culture. And it's a reminder that life is but a vapor. And I would say a little bit of a different way that this life is but a vapor. Uh, this life is but a vapor, but our eternal life that God, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, our eternal life from God goes on forever. And so here's my question. I know this has been an incredible downer, all right? So let's transition out of that, all right? Is the message of the Bible, things stink, deal with it, someday you'll pass on and go to heaven, Put on your big boy pants, put on your big girl pants, and just live with the consequences of these sins. Is that the message of the Bible? That sin entered the world, things stink now, hang on, someday you're going to live forever with, with Jesus in, in all of eternity. Is that the message? Because I said we were going to transition to more hopeful, but that's not super helpful, is it? Just if that's the message, like, yeah, things stink, enjoy the Super Bowl, we're done right? <laughs> you know, that is not the message of the Bible. That, that is not the message of the Bible at all. The, the message of the Bible is that sin has entered the world, but there is an initiative going on under all of this. Instead of an Avenger initiative, you would call this the Jesus initiative, because here's what Jesus did. And I, this was really powerful to me when uh, a guy up in Michigan that I'm preaching through this series with, he pointed this out to me, and it really moved me with the, the way that he, he showed me this, that Jesus entered in to the consequence of our sin. So when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, he entered in and he bore the consequences of our sin. So let me just kind of point this out to you. Consider the consequence of relational discord. All right? So we talked about that there's this relational discord now because of sin. Uh, Jesus never married. Uh, I don't care what the Da Vinci Code says, right? Uh, history's pretty clear on this. Jesus was never married, all right? Uh, please, please don't get your theology from books like that. Read the Bible, all right? So it's important, but um, Jesus was never married, but the Bible says about Jesus that he was despised and rejected by men, that his closest friends turned their back on him, and before they cross, before the cross, they disowned him. And Jesus, although never being married, Jesus experienced great relational discord. Even though he had done nothing wrong, even though he had never sinned, he experienced rejection. He experienced people turning their back on him. He experienced on a level that maybe we will never understand, he experienced relational discord. Consider the consequence of sweat and hard work. 
The Bible tells us that when Jesus was in the garden, his sweat actually turned to drops of blood. So here's what I want you to see about Jesus, all right? Jesus left heaven and he came to earth. No one worked harder than Jesus on a physical level and on a spiritual level. When you talk about hard jobs or dirty jobs or difficult jobs, saving the world would have to be right up at the top, right? I'm gonna bear the sin of the world. That is, no one's ever worked harder than Jesus. No one has, has ever had a harder job than Jesus. Consider the consequence of hiding and separation. Jesus, again, never sinned, but he took our sin upon the cross. And remember what he said from the cross? What he said from the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing this separation from the Father in this moment on my behalf. I'm the sinner. Jesus is not the sinner. And so he bears Steve Higgs' sin to the point where he feels this separation from his Father. He says, God, why have you, Father, why have you forsaken me? And consider the consequence of death. We could go into great detail about the suffering and the death of Jesus from the cross. But I'm not going to do that. We've done that before. I'm not going to do that today. But just the way that he suffered and the way that he died, and this is a man who had done nothing wrong. There was no sin upon him, but he did it on my behalf. And we know that three days later, he refused to stay in that tomb and he walked out uh, and, and ultimately has ascended into heaven where he is right now. He is experiencing, as you study the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is experiencing the consequences of sin. He's experiencing the consequences of sin, of your sin, of my sin, of the sin of every person from Adam and Eve on. He's experiencing the consequences of of our sin. And here's the question as I want to kind of draw toward a conclusion. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would a person who had done nothing wrong, a person who was perfect in every way, why would a person who was living in heaven Why would that person leave all of that, come to earth, and voluntarily bear the consequences of your sin and mine? Why would he do that? Well, I think there are several reasons. I think he did it so that you could receive grace because he loves you that much. And ultimately, the answer over all of these things we're going to talk about is love. But the reason that he did that, the reason he bore the consequences of your sin are so that you could receive grace. Grace that Jesus entered into our worldly experience here. He lived a perfect life and he went to the cross, quite frankly, so that you could receive forgiveness of your sins. The Bible calls this. If you want to impress someone at work tomorrow and you're talking about church, like, hey, what did you guys talk about at church yesterday or whatever? I know these conversations never happen, but just humor me as your pastor. What did you guys talk about yesterday? Substitutionary atonement. Whoa, you're smarter than I am. All right, so if you ever want to feel that way, just lay down. Substitutionary atonement. And here's what this teaches. Jesus took on my sin so I could take on his righteousness. It is an incredibly wonderful thing. So Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life. He takes every lie that I've ever told, every time I've ever lost my temper, every unkind word I've ever said. Jesus takes on my sin so that now when the father looks at me, all he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. And it is an incredible, incredible thing. So when he looks at me, he sees the perfection of Christ. When he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. 
When he looks at me, he sees the holiness of Christ. And so on the cross, God saw our sin being paid for. And now all he sees when he looks at you, when he looks at me, all he sees now is Jesus. He sees a perfect life, a life without sin, a life without, difficult, a life without ever having said or done the wrong thing. And he did that because he loves us. And let me tell you why this is so important and why we harp on this all the time. Grace changes everything. But one of the things that it changed is that grace causes me to no longer run from God in my sin, but instead run to him. So when you understand substitutionary atonement, that my sin has been transferred to the cross and his righteousness has been transferred to me, when you fully understand that grace, and it is a grace, when you understand that when you sin, And when you make mistakes, you give it to Jesus on the cross and it frees you up to say, now I'm gonna run to God in worship. I'm gonna run to God. I'm not gonna hide. I'm not gonna live in shame. I'm not gonna live with all of this stuff. That sin's been paid for. Instead, I'm gonna run to my heavenly father. I'm gonna honor him, worship him and follow him. And I'm gonna have the relationship with him I was created to have in the first place. And that's one of the reasons grace is so important. So many people are walking around thinking they have to pay for their sin. No, no, your sin is transferred to the cross 2,000 years ago and his righteousness is transferred to you. It is substitutionary atonement and it is a beautiful, wonderful thing and it causes you to be able to run to your father even in the midst of your sin. So that's the first reason he did it. The second reason he did it is to set an example for us Listen, I don't have to make an argument to you, I don't think. Please don't make me make make this argument because it would depress me, but I don't think I have to make the argument to you that we live in a broken and fallen world. I'm looking around in here and you've experienced it. I know you have. You've experienced sin. You've experienced death. You've experienced hardship. So I don't need to stand up here and say, hey guys, We live in a broken and fallen world. I don't have to make the argument to you. We all know that it's true. But the question becomes, as followers of Jesus, how do we live in a broken and fallen world? And Jesus comes, he leaves heaven and he comes to earth and he shows us. He shows us. So as you experience this kind of the brokenness of this world, as you experience that, I would encourage you to, to look to Jesus as the example for how you live in this world. How do you respond to someone that betrays you? Jesus shows us. How do you respond when someone hurts you? Jesus shows us. How do you respond when someone sins against you? Jesus shows us. How do you respond when you feel great temptation? And you're you're tempted. You know it's going to lead to death. You know it's going to not lead to life, but you're tempted. How do you deal with that? Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us what it looks like to live a meaningful and good life in a broken and fallen world. And here's the other thing he shows us. He shows us how to bring beauty and grace into this world. The message of the Bible is not the world stinks, hang on. The message of the the Bible is that in Jesus, there is a more beautiful way. In Jesus, there is a more loving way. 
in Jesus, there's a more graceful way. And so we are tasked as Christians to say, I'm going to go in and I'm not going to view this world as broken and falling and going to hell. I'm not going to have that mindset. Instead, I'm going to have this mindset when I leave this place of I now as salt and light and the aroma of Christ. The Bible describes this in all these ways. You are salt, you are light, you are the aroma of Jesus. That now when I leave this place, my chief goal is to bring the beauty. My chief goal is to bring the love. My chief goal is to bring the grace. My chief goal is to be like Jesus in this way and show, man, this world is broken and fallen, but Jesus has shown me a different, better, more loving way. And I just want to show it to you. And so we don't go in with this head down, everything's awful, and I'm just surviving until Jesus returns. Instead, we have our heads up and we are looking for ways to express grace. And we are looking for ways to express love. And we are looking for ways to express beauty. And we are saying, man, I am the aroma of Christ. I am salt. I am light. I am part of a city on a hill. And my chief goal is to not be sorrowful and down, but to be upbeat and graceful. He did it to give us power. Third thing, he did it to give us power. I believe that we are drawn to the same poisonous fruit again and again. Have you ever noticed that? That not every temptation is tempting to me. All right, so, and not every temptation is tempting to you. If it is, I'll be in the overflow after church. I wanna pray with you, all right? right? You're like, I'm tempted by every single thing. No, no, that's not true of anybody. We have our lane. We have the thing that we're tempted by. And I know what mine is. I'm not, I'm not sharing it here, but you know, I, I know what mine is and you know what yours is. And Jesus enters into the story and here's what he says to you and I. He says, through my power and through my blood, you can overcome anything. I said this last week, but let me say it again. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Here's what that means. I know your grandpa and your dad were alcoholics, but in Christ, you can overcome that family history. Look at me. In Christ, you can overcome that family history and you can build a better future for your kids and your grandkids. I know your parents spent way too much money and were debt up to their eyeballs. And I know that strained your family. In Christ, you can overcome that history and show your kids and your grandkids a better future. I know that anger and resentment, it runs in your family, but I am telling you, in Christ, you can overcome that family history and build a better future. That the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work and alive in you, which means you can overcome the example. You can overcome the addiction. You can overcome the sin that has plagued your family for generations and generations. You can say, in Christ, I am choosing a different way. In Christ, I am choosing a better way. In Christ, I am choosing a new life. You can do this in Christ. In your own power and your own strength, we tend to repeat patterns again and again. My dad was angry and I'm angry. My grandpa was an alcoholic, I am an alcoholic. That's what happens on our, on our power. But with the power of Christ and with the support of his church family, you can choose a different way. You don't have to be crippled by the forbidden fruit in your family. You can choose the tree of life and live a different and better life. Let me show you my favorite verse in all the Bible. I don't know if you're supposed to have favorites, but this is right up there, all right? 
We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So what this verse is teaching is that contemplation of Jesus equals transformation. That when our job is to contemplate, our job is to pray and contemplate and read and be focused on Christ. And what this verse is teaching us is that when we do that, when we listen to the sermons, when we read the scripture, when we pray to Jesus, we contemplate. And what this verse is teaching us is that in that moment, the spirit invades our life and transforms us. And so we are contemplating not on all the mistakes of, of, of our father and our grandfather and our grandmother, although we want to be aware of that, but we're not contemplating that because that's not going to lead to power. We're not contemplating the sins and the mistakes in our family tree, right? Although we want to be aware of it, we're not contemplating it. What we are contemplating on is the loveliness and the grace and the power of Jesus, we are contemplating on Jesus and his power invades us and we are able to reject the sins of our past and move into a better future. And I think this is incredibly hopeful for all of us that have a family line that we might not be super proud of. Right? I'm scared to death to do ancestry DNA. I don't want to know. <laughs> Right? I know enough of the recent history to know I don't want to go back to the 1800s and find out what great, 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 great grandpa did. I don't want to know because I'd rather contemplate on Christ. Not that that, that is wrong, just I'm telling you my family tree, I, I, know that, I know what's in some of the past is not good. And I don't wanna rinse and repeat. And I want Sam and Lila to have a better future because I contemplated Christ. And his spirit and his power changed me from the inside out. Lastly, he came to give us hope. Hope in our now and hope in our future. Let me explain. When Jesus conquered the grave, he reminded us of our eternal lives. And I want to talk to you about your eternal life for a minute. You understand your eternal life does not start when you pass away, right? Someday when, when, when the Lord decides he's ready to take you, that is not when your eternal life starts. Your eternal life started when you expressed your faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the good news. All right, and this I don't know, this has always given me a lot of hope and I, I hope it gives you some too. I am living my eternal life right now. Now I am living my eternal life in a broken and fallen place and that gives me mission that I wanna express the beauty. It gives me power that a better day is, a hope that a better day is coming. It gives me power to know that I can overcome uh, my family's past. But I, I am living my eternal life right now and someday I will live it in a place of perfection. Right now I'm living it in a place of imperfection, but right now my eternal life has commenced already. And uh, they, they start the minute we put our faith in Jesus. So if you are a follower of Jesus, someday you will pass away. But a life of loving Jesus, a life of loving others, a life of faithfulness that you are cultivating right now is going to continue on forever and ever and ever. It will just be in a more perfect place. And so right now, Jesus gives us that hope that he is at work right now preparing a place. Right? He used that phrase, I believe, three or four times, that he is preparing a place of perfection, of joy, of peace, a place without, without Satan and temptation and all that stuff. He's preparing that place. But right now, man, I want you to know, right now, keep your head up and look for ways to express grace. 
Look for ways to express love. Keep your head up and be hopeful about the return of Jesus someday. Keep your head up and live on mission and live on purpose. Keep your head up and know that through the power of Christ, you don't have to submit to your family's history. You can choose a better way. Keep your head up, right? The point of Genesis 3 is not that we keep our head down and we kick stones and it's awful and the world's going to hell in a handbasket and things are terrible. That is not the point of, of, of Genesis 3. The point of Genesis 3 is that there is an initiative happening and there is new life happening and there is purpose that is happening. So keep your head up and live for joy. Yes, it's a broken and fallen world. Live with joy and live out the example of Christ and live in hope. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he stepped into the consequences of my sin, of our sin. And he did it for so many reasons, but the chief of them being grace, that we could experience grace, that we could experience hope, that we could experience power, um, and, and that we could see an example of, of how we are to live in this world. Help us to remember, Lord, that I know some of us are going to leave here and we're maybe gonna be slapped in the face with the brokenness and the fallenness. May some of these words come to our mind that, all right, this is an opportunity right now for me to set an example. This is an opportunity for me to summon the power of Christ and, and to endure. This is an opportunity for me to express beauty and grace. This is an opportunity for me to show Jesus. It's hard to remember, help us to do it. We thank you for Jesus. It is in his name we pray, amen.